Knife Making Down Under is brought to you by Gamaco Artisan Supplies, a premium supplier of knife making equipment and materials and consumables in Australia. Uh, they sponsor the podcast and they also sponsor you. So throughout the podcast today, you should hear uh, some different things that you can use the Down Under 10 coupon code for on the website. So stay tuned, enjoy the podcast and uh, stay tuned for that discount code. The more you use it, the better it is for the podcast and the better it is for everybody. So by all means, uh, get into it. Thank you. Welcome to uh, Knife Making Down Under podcast, episode number eight. Um, we've got an international guest presenter today, um, but I could just be fooling you because we actually do, but we don't. Corin uh, has stayed up very late over in Amsterdam, and he's going to be joining us, which is pretty good. Um, we've got, obviously, on board today... Mert Tansu from Tansu Knives. We've got Corin Merka from Gamaco and myself, Kevin Slattery from Kev's Forge. How's everyone going? I'm all right, man. I'm still recovering. And so it's nine o'clock early in the morning for me. And let's just let's just reach out to Corin while still he's still relatively awake at one o'clock with the Amsterdam time. Or is he in Sweden? Corin, where are you? What time is it? Uh, we just landed in Amsterdam today. It's 1 a.m. in the morning here. Uh, had a fairly hectic session doing a bit of day drinking today to help me get through the flight here. So um, I uh, got to the conference that I'm attending here, which is for, for the gas industry. And, um, yeah, we, we went out for dinner, and I basically just got back to the hotel a little while ago. So I'm good to go. Rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a pretty big, pretty big schedule over there, mate. Yeah, we've done um, Ireland, Paris, Sweden, Norway, now Amsterdam, and then then home. And you know, a little bit of that was a, a little bit of that was a, a holiday for my wife and I, and some knife making in there, and uh, some um, some gas. So yeah, it's all all yeah. a bit of bit of a mix. Yeah, awesome. Well, we've uh, we've been busy here in Australia, uh, trying to keep the country running while you're over partying. Um, we um, when was it that we went to your place? Um, uh, Mert had a, Mert had a um, small hammer in, um, so a group of us went up to Mert's place um, and and learnt some of the stuff that he does up there. When was that, Mert? It was on the fourteenth, almost almost two weeks ago. I can't believe that. I was following it on Instagram. It looked like an awesome weekend. Yeah, it was good. And Kev came on Friday, so Kev was Kev was here first on Friday, and I I did some cooking while he was there. And we went to shop late night, and did a little shop tour and show some of the tricks that I was doing. And then you know, like when you're with the knife maker, you think you know something, you're showing it, but next thing is that person shows you something. You're like, yeah, I'm a dickhead. I never thought of that. It's such a it's such a fun like you're showing something like oh this is how I do it and you see the spark in their eyes and then they're like oh you're dumb you should have been doing like this so it was fun then yeah. the next day we had the sausage man over here we had <coughs> we have uh, Bjorn here from the creative man then after that we also had Riley Riley Burns uh, 
So we did some forging, we did some chair forge, the integral knife, we did some semi, and the night of the Saturday, I made a little run of Tamahagane. So. Where did you get good. the, oh, I followed that. Where did you get the ore from for the Tamahagane, or did you just use um, scrap metal? Scrap metal plus um, scale, forge scale. Oh, really? Yeah. So how did that work? Did it come up good? Did you forge it, or is it just a... No, I didn't forge it, so some of the parts are looking good. Some of the parts haven't completely consolidated, but by the time the um, by the time we were done with the smelt, it was 11 o'clock, and we were, we were <laughs> up all day, all night, and I was so tired. Now, I should have consolidated while it's still hot, but I was like, I'm done, man. I'm dead. I'm dead. I just... We just walked inside and had a few more drinks and I crushed. I crushed hard. Have you got neighbors where you are? Yeah. What what we're going to do here, right? Let's just go back about um, 12 to 24 hours in that mix. After I made it to Mert's house on Friday night, um, (laughs) Mert opened up a bottle of red wine and, and Mert and I drank that one pretty quick. So out come another bottle of red wine, which we drank pretty quick. Yeah. And now come another bottle of red wine, which we drank slightly slower. And then we realized it was like midnight, we're smashed, and uh, we had a we big day. Ahead of us next day. Yeah. We did a live feed. <laughs> As we've, we still don't learn from mistakes, we still do drunk live feeds. Um, and so we woke up. i got to say, when I woke up uh, Saturday morning, I was pretty dusty. My head, my head was not in the right zone. And then, every, like I said, then everyone came over and we got through the day. But um, Riley and I started drinking. We, we worked really hard, finished work early, and got to the beers pretty early. <laughs> so, yeah. And then Mert and Bjorn got stuck into, what was that Turkish aniseed drink that you had? Yeah, it's called the Zraka. And I was about to go into bed, and Bjorn mentioned about something about Istanbul, and he said that he had that. I'm like, oh, I got a bottle. Let's try it, and it's a 45%, 45% alcohol. It's, it's strong stuff. So we had one, two, and then next thing I know is two o'clock. We are both shit faced, and he's talking, and my eyes are about to close. I'm like, Bjorn, we gotta cut this out, man. We, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was a slow yeah, was start a, the next morning too. Yeah, that was a good weekend. Thanks for putting that on too, Mert. That was a good thing. Needed to get oh, me head out of. I needed to get away from home and, and, and do something with some friends, so that was a good thing to do. But in the, uh, in the... Although the traffic, the traffic from Sydney to, or pretty much the M2 up to nearly an hour away from Mert's house was absolutely atrocious on Friday, so it wasn't fun. I was a bit how, cranky when Mert rang to see where I was. How good is the industry out here, though, in Australia? Like, where there's sort of a hammering happening just about every other weekend somewhere in Australia. Like, someone's inviting somebody into their shops and doing crazy stuff like smelting forge scale to make a knife or, you know, the guys from QMAC are always doing something. you got the guys from the Northern Rivers doing something. There's a crew down in Adelaide now that have got together. There's the West Australian guys, um, you know, guys down in Canberra. Uh, you know, it's just when, when I started having hammerings in uh, probably 2007 or 2008, we were getting sort of two or three or four people through the bushcraft forums and then... Um, um, it's just at the point now where it's happening everywhere. It's, it's really good. 
Yeah, it's awesome, and you can organise them pretty, uh, pretty quickly too, and get enough people to attend. They don't have to be huge. They don't. They don't have to be massive. Like the amount of people we had there, you couldn't have any more. Otherwise, Mert's workshop would have just been too busy. We had three of us doing sand my forging, and it was pretty interesting uh, and amazing how none of us ended up burning each other. Yeah, yeah my, my shop is not huge. You know, it's like a four meters to ten meters shed, so it's. It's manageable. It's it's great that I'm by myself. It's okay if there's another person, but we were working like in pairs. I was either way in the grinding room watching the guys grind, or I was in the. But going from the grinding, like you're squeezing behind somebody while they're trying to grind, and you're letting the belly touch their back, and like sorry, passing through, passing through. I thought I I thought I was getting lucky, but he was just going from the grinding room to the to the forge when he grabbed me on the hips and gave me a little bit of a rub. <laughs> Straight to grinder, Kev. Straight to grinder. <laughs> what grinder are we talking about? I just want to clarify. Variable <laughs> yeah, yeah. speed grinder. <laughs> what happens to the hammer in oh, should stay at the hammer in. I'm sorry. Rule, rule number one of the hammer in. Don't talk about the hammer in. But, but I've got to tell you, I've got to say, I say, Mert, Mert yeah, at, that, at the hammer in, you um, showed us uh, something pretty cool. It was, it was long, and had a had a bit of a curve in it, and uh, was was Turkish, wasn't it? Then 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 you had a visitor come around to your place. We're talking about the uh, the sword man. Oh yeah, I'm like, what the hell he's talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought we were gonna. See, I could see Bert, Bert just then. I could just hear him. Right, he's thinking. I thought that was going to stay at the hammer in. I thought we weren't going to talk about that. Oh, the sword man. Per <laughs> usual, Kevin has been a dick. So I'm, I'm fascinated yeah. with the medieval swords, especially from uh, from Middle East. And there was a face, there's a page on YouTube that I've been following, and I was watching this guy videos, and I found that he has a page on Instagram. Then I commented on a picture, then all of a sudden he. We start even messaging back and forth. I didn't notice this guy was living one and a half hours near from me. I thought this guy lived in UK or something. He has a massive sword collection. I was talking that I want to make a, a typical sword known as a shamshir, and this guy messaged me saying, "Hey, if you want to make a shamshir, I'll bring you one so you can take a dimensions." And the, the shamshir, the sword that he was bringing, was a from a very well-known maker from the 16th century, Asad Allah from Isfahan. So he said, I have this piece. You want me to bring it? I said, fuck yeah. It's like museum coming to my house. So and then I made I made a sword after that. Like I forged a sword. It's not complete, but so that's the curvy long Turkish thing he's talking about. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's all making so much the sense. Other, the other curvy long Turkish thing we'll we'll leave for another time. We're gonna be so much fucking cancelled. <laughs> What I was gonna what I was gonna say before though was the um the hammerings. People say like when we organise an event, right? People say, When are you gonna organise one in my town or when are you gonna organise one in, in Timbuktu or wherever the wherever they live and it's always the same thing, mate. It's always you live there, why don't you organise one there? It's not actually that hard to organise a, a get together or a hammer in these days, is it? Not at all. No, it's quite easy. 
the only the only stumbling blocks can be insurance and um, you know if you're a member of the guild you you'll be covered there for for normally for a hammering I think but you yeah I mean even even so if you're not charging people you most home insurance policies will cover you so I don't yeah. I don't see the issue. Uh, look, no. I, I was happy that ever, everybody was being responsible and I set the rules up saying, guys, when we use machinery, no booze. Like the second the shop is done, get shit-faced. But the, one of the clear thing was don't drink and use machinery because those things will hurt you. Those machinery that you make nice with hurt you. I've never hurt myself when I'm drunk using machinery, but I have hurt my machinery when I'm drunk using machinery. So that's the other side of the coin. <laughs> That's exactly right, isn't it? <laughs> it's only a matter of time, but anyway. Yeah. I think machinery is like, look, I'm going to let you hurt myself because you're drunk. If you keep going, I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> That's what the machinery is telling you. Uh, I broke my radius master when I was drunk, showing how great it was. Anyway, we won't go there. Let's, um, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Don't do as we say or as we do. <laughs> Beginner tip number one. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, Don't forget, guys, that this podcast is brought to you by Gamaco Artisan Supplies. We have our discount code there, our coupon code. When it, Use it whenever you buy. It's down under 10, and it'll get you 10% off all Dharma Steel products, including the fantastic steel RWL34. Dharma Steel is the premium Damascus uh, steel made from powder metallurgy technology, it is a very high performer and looks great too. So yeah, if you want the very best Damascus steel that's not going to rust but going to perform like carbon steel, then uh, Dharma Steel's your friend. Uh, and you can get it with 10% off with that discount code. Thank you. Hey, Corin, why don't you tell us about the, the, the Paris show? Ah, oh, right. Do you visit the Dharma Steel? Maybe I should start at the beginning and, and kick off with a bit of a, what happened in Ireland first. It wasn't it wasn't super knife making related though, but I there's two things that happened in Ireland. Actually, there's only one I'm going to worry about, and that was we we're travelling around. This is a holiday for my wife and I. We haven't been away together in 20 years without the kids, and this is three weeks away without the kids. It's unbelievable. Um, so we go to Ireland to see her family, and we we don't have any plan, right? We just fly in. We know when we're flying in. We know when we're flying out, and we're organising accommodation as we're travelling. So she's got family there that she didn't even know. Like, she doesn't even know this family. Turns out she's got, like, 100 relatives all, all over the place there. I, um, uh, yeah, so we, we're basically uh, looking at booking.com every night trying to find a hotel. And we found this one called Rockets Castle, and we thought it was a hotel. But it turns out it wasn't a hotel. It was Rockets Castle, which is a pirate's castle on this river, near Waterford, where the crystal comes from. And there's a mansion there that has been built and a big guest house that's all dates back forever. So we go to this place and um, it's basically this guy whose wife left him and he's a millionaire and <laughs> we're sitting in, we're, we're living in this mansion for like 150 bucks for the night or something. And um, yeah, the, the chandeliers in the place, um, were worth about 700,000 euro in 2004, to give wow. you an idea. The, the sitting down for dinner at the 20, you see those movies where people are like uh, sitting at both ends of the big long table and 
having eating a meal or something in a in a English mansion sort of thing, even though it's Irish, yeah. Irish. That's how it was. Twenty twenty seat table or something like that, having breakfast. Totally bizarre. That was my, probably my most memorable experience from from Ireland, and I just wanted to say that. But anyway, the shows. So, CCAC and Fix, F I C X, are on on the same weekend in Paris. So it's two night shows, one weekend, on basically on the same times: Friday, Saturday, uh, Thursday night, Friday, Saturday. <clears throat> and the big problem for us was we flew in on the Friday morning, which was basically the morning of the Fran- Paris transport strike. So there was no public transport in in France that day. So we got a cab from the airport, got caught up in traffic. Yeah. It was a real nightmare, and it really killed the show. I think the people were very unhappy at the show because there was people didn't go out because you couldn't catch a tram, couldn't catch a train. Um, the subway network in Paris is is pretty awesome, and so people couldn't get around. So I got around because my wife and I walked across Paris. There's an hour walk between the two shows. So we got around and saw them, but we kind of had the shows to ourselves. Like it wasn't wasn't the big crowds I thought you you would expect. So CCAC had they've had that that show's been running for like 26 years. They've had some big names there over the years, Loveless. Gil Hubbard, Hibbard, or whatever his name is. They've had all sorts of people that have have attended that show. The level of workmanship there is not the same as FICAX. I think FICAX might be invitational. You guys know Glenn, Glenn Waters? Do you guys know Glenn? Yeah. yeah. So Glenn was at FICAX, and, you know, the quality of his work is pretty much the um, um, the level that that show is at. There was probably... 20 Swedish makers there, some French makers, some guys from South Africa, uh, mates with um, mates with Henning, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, there was there, it was a good show. That was a really really good show. Some really just mind blowing art knife stuff. That a really mind blowing. The other show was more like your just your general, you know, blade show or Sydney knife show, or Adelaide or whatever like. Similar sort of content, but you know what? What struck me about those two shows is that just about I was, you know, you know, me, always wearing a knife show t-shirt or a knife t-shirt. Yep. Everywhere I went, I was wearing the Sydney knife show t-shirt. Everywhere I went, people said to me, "Oh, I've been considering coming to that. Is it is it worth doing Sydney knife show?" And I'm like, "Well, I don't know if you're going to sell a knife. I don't I don't know if it's going to pay your costs." I said, "But it'd be worth doing. It'd be barrel of laughs. You'll have fun." So, yeah, I don't know. They all knew about it. So, I think oh, that's, that's good. pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That was probably the I biggest. I was talking to a German knife maker yesterday. He said he's talking and thinking about coming to Sydney knife show. I was, I was quite surprised. They're all, they're all thinking about it. I'd just like to see if, if we can convince them to come out. Maybe, you know, if if the industry in Sydney can pull together and organise to take them on some tours or show them around and. You know, give give them a good time, make it worth their while. Because, well, we all know what happens when you, we go overseas. We go to um, Blade or whatever. You go and spend some time in another maker's shop and and um, and have a laugh. So a little bit of a cross cultural yeah. exchange. So yeah, absolutely. I don't know what what it's going to take to get them over the line to to come to Sydney, but uh, I reckon it'd be worthwhile. I reckon 
if nothing else, just to have them come and we can learn from them. I mean, that's even better, right? Yeah. That'd be great. At least um, you're you know, telling us about that transport strike um, puts into perspective some of the photos of the shows that you posted up because I was looking at them going, shit, did he get like early access at 6 o'clock in the morning because there's, you know, one of your photos, I think there was literally about four people in it. Yeah, it was a disaster, was like, mate. Man, that's, there's no one there. That'd, be, that'd be horrendous. That'd be like Sydney show having a, like Sydney having a, um, transport strike and then closing down Parramatta um, region on the day of our show. Yeah, no, it was a disaster. We, that, I, um, yeah, in one of those photos, yeah, there would have been about, the, the room was empty and the people were upset. You can imagine knife makers, mate, they've come from Sweden. They're paying for a table there, you're paying something like $1,000 Australian, like if you work it out, something yeah. to fix. It's, a, it's an amazing venue. It's an amazing show. But people have invested a lot of money to be there and the, you know, the, the train drivers go on strike. Well, hey, thanks very much, guys. You it's know? also strange to have the two nice shows on the same day. Oh, stupid. I just no. fucking, I can't understand it. I love it that it's two, because it meant that I could go to two different shows. But why wouldn't you, the, that organiser of that show talk to the organiser of that show and put them in the same building somewhere. I mean, I don't understand that. But anyway, that's all right. Yeah. Mine's not to understand. I was very happy to to be able to to attend them, even if I had to walk a, an hour there and an hour back when it came to um, fix. Yeah, that would have been would have been good to see um, a good way to see the sights of Paris. But like I said, with the end goal in mind. Can I tell you what I think? Kind of envious of your envious of your travels, but yeah, if that had been the case, I reckon I'd have, I'd have been pretty shitty myself. Not just the people on the tables, but as you know, a person that goes to the shows. To to be honest, right? I'm not a. I travel for work. I go, you know, I go factory tours and shit. I do stuff all the time. And I got to tell you, like Paris was. I thought, oh, it'll be really pretty and beautiful and everything else. You know, it's just fucking so full of tourists. It, yeah. the, the, the smell is not nice. It's sewage mixed with tobacco is the best way to describe it. Yeah, and, yeah, and just to be honest, mate, I just I I could give it a miss. To be honest, I they don't look after their city. There's bloody cigarette butts all in the bloody gutters, like in in, in like you know when mulch like mulch cigarette butts piled yeah. up like mulch in the gutters. I couldn't. Ah, no, nah, it's not for me, mate. Yeah, right. so, Maybe the maybe the cleaners were on strike or something. Tourism Australia, go for it. <laughs> yeah, come to Australia, it's heaps better. Um, oh yeah. Don't come to Australia, you might get <laughs> rejected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just smells like stale booze and vomit when you come to Australia. Not not uh, cigarette butts and, and shit. <laughs> no, that's it, mate. That's yeah. it. So then I um I toddled over to Sweden. Went and said hello to the guys at Dharma Steel, which was really good. Those guys are really good people. And um, had a look at their process. Just excuse me for a sec. Did you hear that? I hope not. So anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, what am I going to do? Stop, stop tearing paper up while you're on here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> 
in a big day. So anyway, yeah, we spoke to the bit head blacksmith there, Roger. He's the leading hand sort of guy. He took us round and gave us a tour on how they basically bring the Dharma steel in from the, um, yeah, you know, from the canister basically right through to the finished product. And you know, working the, uh, the that comes in in these huge bars like 150 million diameter or something, and you know they forge it and and work it and they do it. Um, they do it every day. It's like yeah, they run yeah. in running electric furnaces and it's it's a pretty cool process, you know, to be honest. And it looks clean coin, like the the whole the shop, everybody's everybody's clothing looks so clean, like it looked like laboratory. I felt like I'm such a grub, like when I'm when I'm doing forging, I look like a homeless when I'm in the shed. And I look at their shop, looks immaculate, there's no dust, there's no nothing. No, 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 it's no. totally spotless. And the people over here <clears throat> They wear these. Um, I actually bought a pair, so I'll, I'll put them up on Instagram later. But they wear these cargo pants. You all know how I like cargo pants. They have these um, cargo pants with these flaps that hang down the front, sort of thing. And everybody you see, like if they're working on a road, if they're an electrician, whoever they are, they've got t one or normally two more knives on their one on their belt, one in their pocket. Um, that they just carry everywhere, like they carry them into a service station, into the pub. No one blinks an eye. It's really, it's really quite civilized from that perspective. You know, if you did that at home, um, carrying a couple of fixed blades on you, uh, going into a restaurant or a pub or whatever, it wouldn't wouldn't end well, would it? No, we crash tackle have, to the ground. Have you guys seen it? Have you guys seen it? There's a some Church of England is saying in UK, we should ban all the kitchen knives with pointy tips. They, in this day and age, they cannot exist. They're too dangerous. And yeah, mate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they could jump up and take out someone's eye mert. I think, you know, as custom knife makers, we need to respond to this by making knives that only have curved tips. You said jump up. Magpies will do that. Not knives. So you can't control yeah. knives. It's so stupid. It's just. I read, so I, I read that article and then sent a screenshot to Mert, and and the justification was, you don't need a pointy tip on a knife anymore because we now have forks. So oh, in the old days they used to, have to stab their, they used to have to stab their food with a knife, and therefore that's why they needed a tip. And you're looking at this dude going, uh, you know, what drugs are you on, mate? Because you know. Try and try and prepare your dinner with a uh, spatula, because that's about what it's going to be like. Well, you know, the uh, mate, I don't know. We're we're, we're branching into the point. we're branching into religion here, but I, I think there is a law. It's a common law: thou shalt not kill. Now, if we just respected that one, nothing else would really matter that much, would it? Yeah, that's it. Wouldn't matter if we carried four knives on our belt, and 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 they had all had points. Heaven forbid, um, mm. you know. If if we're just nice to each other, uh, the world would be just a happier place, wouldn't it? So after, um, I see your point, Kevin. I totally yes. get it. <laughs> That's a joke. By the way, Kevin is just like shoving a knife in the in the screen. So <laughs> sort of. <laughs> we one of these days we've got to do this as a video video cast so people can see the stupidity you guys get up to. It's not me. I am totally fucking professional. My fart yeah. will get edited out. It's no yeah, issue. I was gonna yeah, completely <laughs> professional. But you have to see the eyes. Like he's giving us the look saying, 
if you guys were my employees, I'll fire your ass in a heartbeat. Give me that look. Ah, uh, well, mate. If we, didn't, if we didn't know Corin better, I'd be looking at his eyes right now going, yeah, he's in Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> so then um, yeah. after after Darmastil, I, I we got in the car and drove for a couple of hours north up to a, a little place called Grants Falls. And you, you guys might be familiar with Grants Falls Brooks, which is the, um, and I'm probably butchering their language, but, you know, I don't give a fuck anyway, um, <clears throat> is where they make the axes, right? So there's a traditional uh, axe-making forge there where they've got these beautiful machines that um, they're like a rotating press thing that um, have multiple tooling, sort of 10, 15 different tools on each one. And they oh, use, yeah. them, use them to forge the axes. I've got, I've got a little clip on my Instagram and I've got a bigger video that I haven't put up yet where the guy explains the yeah. process. But they they basically... Yeah. So, Corin, is that the place where you showed a picture of the street and they were using anvils on the street as like the... Oh, no, that's that's in, that's in Eskilstuna. That was something else. I'll get to that. Come on. Give me give me half a chance. Anyway, this, this these guys are forging out these... Um, these axe heads, and um, um, basically I said to him, when I first arrived, he's forging, and then he just throws it in the corner and starts again, and he throws it in the corner and it starts again, he just looks at me and goes, there's many ways to not forge an axe. <laughs> and it, looks, <laughs> it looks easy when he's, do it, when he's getting it right, but, you know, they don't get yeah. them all right. Yeah, so he says, I said, how many can you make in a day, on a good day? If the wind is blowing in the right direction, if, you know, you wake up and your girlfriend's giving you head, you know, that day, that day I can make a hundred, but I never have that day. <laughs> <laughs> Normally I make 40. <laughs> so, oh, he was, it was funny, as he was a good guy. And, you know, they showed us around and gave us a tour of the forge, which was mighty nice. And um, I bought... A few axes because, well, why wouldn't you? And then um, yeah. we headed over to Norway, which was really met up with some friends, and I won't waste your time with that, but that was pretty nice. So I'd recommend Norway. The only thing I'm going to say about Norway is it cost damn near on 50 bucks for me to buy McDonald's for my wife and I, and I just thought, Phew. and Norway is expensive. End of story. So yeah. It's just expensive. So they're taxed, and um, they've got all that North Sea oil, and for whatever reason, everything there is expensive. We came back to Sweden and um, I went to my, my hometown, my other hometown, Eskilstuna. Eskilstuna is the place where barrel knives were originally made. They were made, um, I read a report there that uh, one, one firm got an order for uh, 3,000 dozen knives in one order. 3,000 wow. dozen barrel knives. So. That's a pretty significant order, considering like I make one a year. If you work that out, I reckon sometime, a long time from now would be, I'd never feel that, let's be honest. So <clears throat> that's where the anvils were, no, but they weren't real anvils. They were actually cast concrete. It did look pretty cool, though. They're, uh, yeah, so they're making a um, making a barrier for the cars with, with cast concrete anvils and a piece of rope, and so it looked pretty good, so... I took a picture of that. If they're using anvils for cars as like a value, I cannot imagine their Facebook market people selling anvils. I would have put one in the car, to be honest. Those pricks, don't start me on that hotel. I had a fight with them this very morning. They 
they said to me, oh, I'll put this in your windscreen and you, we'll charge you for parking and everything. And then uh, I got a parking ticket. And then they said, oh, it's your problem because uh, it's not ours sort of thing. And I'm like, anyway, I don't, don't get me started. I got, I got. Yeah. So let's, let's move on from Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> this except, is Colin from Sweden. Except for there's only one handmade knife maker left there. His name is Jan, Jana. Uh, and on Instagram, knivsmedjan, so K-N-I-V-S-M-E-D-J-A-N. He's the last one there, so give him a follow, give him a like, give him your support. He mostly does restoration work on old pieces, but he also makes a bushcraft knife and a filleting knife that he does a fair few of, and I bought a couple of things off him. Um, so I was happy to sort of support him. His firm, his father worked for the firm, he worked for the firm, um, has been running since like 1890 and he's working out of a forge that was built in 1650 so it's pretty hard to conceive just how old that is like from Australia when yeah. the, old, the oldest building around is going to be what 70 years old or something you know 100 years old yeah that's crazy yeah and then here I am I flew out of there this morning so I drove, drove up to the airport and here I am so that's that 1am listening to us wankers <laughs> oh, you know. What are you going to do? <laughs> no, nothing. We gave her the option. <laughs> no, I would have. I've always gone to bed, but I was. I was still awake. Like I said, been out to dinner with uh, the old men of the gas industry. And um, sorry if they listen, but you are old. And um, here we are. Today, we have the youngest member of the Gamaco Artisan Supplies team, Lucas. Lucas, how old are you? Seven. So you're seven years old. And what do you do at Gamaco Artisan Supplies? Well, what do you do? Don't ask me. You don't know your own job. <laughs> what? I'll see you. Okay. Cut to the chase. What do you want to be when you grow up, Lucas? Knife maker. You want to be a knife maker. And what's the best way to get into knife making? Yeah, that's our phone whisper. Gamaco Supplies. Gamaco Artisan Supplies. This kid's good. And if you want a discount on knife making kits, beginner knife making kits at Gamaco Artisan Supplies, we're going to use a discount code down under 10. So... If you want to be a budding knife, you're a budding knife maker like Lucas here, um, by all means, jump on, uh, have a look at our knife making kits, use the code down under 10 and it should take 10% off for you to purchase uh, the best materials and gear in the industry. So, there you go. Thank you. We got any questions this week, Kev? Uh, yeah, Mert, you were saying something about you had some questions there. All right, I had a question from John Kerr Knifecraft. John, T-E-R, Knifecraft. And he had a long message. Basically, he's asking the advantages of this sander over a belt grinder and how uh, we keep talking how it makes our life easy with the hand sanding and how the, pretty much he's asking how does it work. So I keep talking about uh, this, this sander. So to be able to work this sander, what you do is I have a little rubber backing on my disc sander and using a 3M feathering glue, I, I glue my uh, abrasive. I usually use my uh, Rhino with papers and let's say I come up from the grinder 600 grit and if I start my 
hand sanding using this grinder, let's say 400 grit, it takes about two minutes to get rid of all of these vertical scratches. So if I do like a two minutes work on it and move it from 400 grit, then I can put an 800 paper, do the right and the left side of the knife. So by the time I'm done with sanding, I can start hand sanding the blade at 800 grit. It cuts down your hand sanding time so much. And the second, the other thing is, when you do your grinding, if you keep grinding constant the same direction, the second you hit with the, this grinder, it's going to show you the, your high and low spots. So that's the advantages of the disc grinder. And I use, uh, I use, I some people are using beveled disc, but I use flat disc. What do you use? Do you use uh, beveled or uh, flat disc? Uh, I use a flat disc uh, on the nine-inch one, and I have, um, you know, for, for good fortune years ago, um, we got a engineering mob here in Canberra to convert the big wheel on the Radius Master into a disc grinder as well, but that's got a one degree bevel on it. And I actually have um, um, Velcro-backed discs for that one. So I use that one predominantly for timber. The other thing with the disc grinder, Mert, is it's got a larger surface area for you to put your knife on and get those scratches off. So you're not exactly. having to pass your eight-inch chef knife across a two-inch wide surface. You're putting it onto a nine-inch disc, which you can cut the whole surface area. Mm -hmm. There's, there's ways to go about using the disc that make it easier and you'll probably, you know, when you first, or when I first jumped on and used my disc sander, um, I didn't really do it right. And then it was, I think, when Sean McIntyre came up for a, for a visit one time up to camera, I got to see him in action on it and then just had one of those light bulb moments was like, oh shit, okay, I'm doing it all wrong. Um, yeah, but as you said, you can have a rubber backing on there. You just, I get my stuff like one mil um, woven rubber from Clark Rubber, put that on there. Or um, what I found is just using uh, like the back piece of cardboard off the Rhino wet paper. That also yep. does a good job. Or if you really want to go for a flat surface, you just put your, um, obviously clean your disc and put your paper directly on it. But that's pretty severe. Like if you're, if you want to blend anything, I, I do that with the with the rubber backing on it as well. But like I said, well, it's, it's effectively, I, I run mine really slow as well. Um, I used to run mine really quite fast. Then I went up and uh, spent a bit of time with Chad, Tristone Blades, and he was looking at me like I was a madman because I turned his disc grinder on and then up the speed. And he was like, no, 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 turn it right down. So I run mine at about, uh, if I'm, post heat treat, grinding, blending, that sort of stuff. I run mine at probably eight or nine hertz. Yeah. And it's all slow. Cool, slow, flat. Yeah, well, and a bucket of water. When I make my Japanese sandals, I rely on the disc heavily. I do it without oh, yeah. the back pin at 80 or 120 grit, so I can shape the contours. But let's say I got my octagonal or my D-shape done with the disc, then I go to backing with the rubber backing. I go to 400 with the rubber backing, 800, 1200, and I do a minimal to non hand sanding on those handles because yeah. rubber has a give. So if you see like a little scratch, you can press a little bit and rubber will take care of it. With the rubber backing, it'll take care of it without giving any more deep scratches. So it's one of the best tools you can buy to step up your game. Yeah, the flat. Yeah. It's, the a big, it, it's a big investment, but I'll tell you, when you, if you want to get, you know, more consistent finish on your knives and stuff, 
it definitely is something worth worth considering. But obviously, you know, if you're a beginner and you're a hobby maker and you're pumping out, you know, a knife a, a knife a month or a knife a week even. Um, knife a year. You know, what was that, Karen? Knife a year. Knife <laughs> <laughs> a year. <laughs> but you've got a disc, and and that you know the funny thing is, as Mert was saying, when you have the hammer-ins and stuff, and someone comes over and shows you something to do. When I was up at your place, um, and we had our little heat treating dilemma, um, and we said, "I'll oh, just chuck it on the disc and clean it up," and then Corin was like, "Oh, that's how I use my disc." <laughs> <laughs> I've never used you know. it except that Sean said to me, "I had to get a disc." Sean McIntyre, he said, yeah. "It's the only way." to get handle materials flat. If you're making a, a handle with multiple materials and you're going to glue them together, he said, you will not get anywhere near a disc in terms of flatness out of a belt grinder. And and I found that to be predominantly true, actually, just in playing with it since we've, since we started set it up when you were there, Kev. Yeah. If you're doing full tang stuff, um, you know, absolutely. If you want to get your scales flat, you don't have any backing on it. You chuck your paper on. Um, when I put my paper on there, I've got one of those, um, uh, like they're an artist roller for when they do like the relief printing, the press printing. So it's a three inch wide um, rubber roller. And I, I put my stuff on with the glue and then roll it over. So I'm kind of guaranteeing things are flat. And then it's just about repetition, you know, use it enough times that you don't get any wobbles and stuff on it and go slowly but surely on it. And then you'll end up with a flat surface. But like yeah. so there's, there's plenty of other ways getting a flat surface if you don't have a disc grinder. And there's different different ways to glue the glue the sandpaper on as well. So we spoke about the feathering adhesive, and and Kev, you showed me that basically how to apply it by by squeezing a small amount on and then moving it to the side with the disc spinning slowly, so you get a nice even cover. And then basically the stuff is you can just put the paper on, peel it off, put on a new piece of paper, peel it off, put on a new piece of paper, peel it off. There's other there's other stuff though that works as well, isn't there? So you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, the, before that, I was using like Sikaflex spray glue. The big difference being with the Sikaflex glue, if you if your piece of paper wore out, which they do really quickly on a disc, mind you, so your piece of paper wears out with the Sikaflex, you've got to peel it off pretty much straight away, um, or it will dry and stick there, and then you need to scrape it off and clean it off with acetone and everything else. Um, yeah. So there's a number of um, there's a number of the like full-on bonding adhesives that you can use for your disc. I think for the one that's like the feathering adhesive, um, again, Chad up at his place, was he was the one that showed it to me. Um, and I was just mind blown because of all the time I'd spent with a razor blade or one mm. of my old knives scraping off sandpaper. And, you know, you spend 15 minutes cleaning your disc up because you forgot to peel the paper off the night before. Um, but the nice thing with the feathering adhesive is you leave your paper on there and you can come back, you know, days later or weeks later even and peel that paper off and it's still sticky enough to apply another piece on there. Yeah, yeah. We saw. You just want to you just want to keep it clean, the backing surface clean. Um, with that rubber backing it it I found that the feathering adhesive builds up reasonably uh, like you know, you'll end up with slight lumps on it over time. So when I go to Clark rubber I buy about five feet of that particular rubber and I just have it there and every now and then I'll just cut a piece, I'll throw one out and cut another piece off. Mm. Yeah, so that's disc grinders. Is there anything else? The other thing that I've heard, you guys might have used it, but and I've been asked to set one up, is um, using a foot switch with them. Yeah, that's um, something that when I was in America, um, that 
you know, Bill Burke and Rick Dunkley and those guys all set up uh, foot switches on them, which is awesome because you can put your piece of material, whether it's, you know, scales to get flattened or a blade, you can actually put that on the disc and just give it a light touch on the pedal and it'll just do a small finish rather than having your disc running and then having to get your approach angle bang on the money. Um, yeah, so that's something I'm, I'm real keen on doing. I reckon that's going to be, um, yeah, it'll be something that happens very soon with my, my one anyway. Well, I just set I just set one up on the um, on the die filer using an old uh, sewing machine foot pedal that I'd got off an yeah. old obviously an old sewing machine and I wired it up to the VFD. I had to program the VFD to do it differently. But anyway, uh, after you know a few hours of cussing and swearing, it works great. Yeah, you should have got Jamie around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's not local. But anyway, he's not local to you either. So I should have. He brought the <laughs> he brought the machine down from the central coast, so. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> but no, nah, no, nah, it's all good. Sausage yeah. man's delivery services. He, he brought my wall down down for me too. <laughs> yeah. nah, he's a, he's, a, no, he's no. a lovely guy, but I don't want to don't want to burn any bridges there. Yeah, So, Vic, I, I believe we had another question somewhere on the way about um, working with man-made materials like G10 and Micarta. Was that on the cards? Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to find who sent it. But basically the question was, so we talked about last week about the dust extraction, but now the question coming to what crates with dust and how to work with them. So the question was how to work with the man-made materials. So we can cover about like how to work with the, some of the handle materials like synthetics like G10, micarta, or even uh, carbon fiber. And we can also talk about like uh, mm -hmm. some of the metals, to, like, for example, you're doing a micarta, scales and you want to have a little bit of brass the liners to go with it and how to combine them together and how those materials react so we can talk about the i mean for example g10 and micarta according you, you 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 dealt great deal with them so what do you think of it uh, the micarta and g10 and how to work with them it's like this, guys. If you've ever been to a boat maker or any, uh, you know, a surfboard maker, anybody that works with fiberglass, the first thing you notice is they're always wearing a mask and they take a lot of caution with dust. And and that's as a knife maker, you've got to do it. You've got to get a good quality, a good quality mask uh, first and foremost. But second of all, is that dust goes all around your shop. So when you're cleaning, you're sweeping the floor, anything like that, you're stirring up that dust. You have your mask back on. In fact. You're probably better off uh, vacuuming and exhausting your your dust, you know, into a into a suitable location uh, outside, preferably, and uh, away from the kids. That you know, there's no two ways about it. It's not just the obviously the synthetics. We spoke about it at length last time, but also your timbers. There's a lot of poisonous timbers. Um, <laughs> I, I I don't have the solution to this, right? Because to me. If you could make knives without making dust, um, you, your knife making would be way simpler and way nicer and way safer. And I don't have that solution. There's some really beautiful, beautiful um, concepts out there where people are pulling their um, vacuuming their uh, waste through water and things. I don't know what else to say because honestly, that stuff is all the dust that we work with, even the dust that comes off the belts, the silica and the ceramics that come off the belts, it's all dangerous. It's all bad. It's all bad. Yeah. Uh, the second I get in the shed, well, i got to put the mask on. 
especially when you do grinding. And all those man-made materials, like carbon fiber, straight cancer. Like if you do any carbon fiber grinding without any mask, that dust is straight cancer material. <coughs> like you have to put full-on clothing and gloves, so you don't want that stuff to touch your skin. Same thing with the G10. The problem with the G10 and the carbon fiber is they're so light, they get suspended in air. Yeah. And you suck it, and they they get stuck to your lungs. And they'll sit on your water bucket. If you notice that with G10, it'll build up yeah. on the water on your bucket, like it'll still be a still be a dust. It doesn't go into the water. Yeah. It's it's um yeah. Look, it's it's nasty stuff. I'll, I'll, you know, it's, you, it's not just a, your mask either. By the way, you take your mask off at the end of the day, the stuff's all through your clothes. You got to. I don't have the solution. Yeah. You got to wear a bloody give, hat mask myself, or something. Yeah, I give myself a quick. Um, hose down with the air compressor at the end of the day. Um, same thing, I, I have an area out the side of my workshop that opens up to pretty much, you know, no one lives the other side of the fence. So that's where I blow most of the dust out. But like you said, you come in the next day, you come in 10 minutes after you've cleaned your workshop, run your finger along your countertop and I guarantee you're going to have dust on there. It's inevitable. Yeah, I'd um, love to hear. So, I'd love Love to hear some solutions from our listeners. Actually, they could give us a shout out on Facebook or Instagram. Tell us, send us some pictures. What you're doing? We've seen seen a couple on the. I think it was on the page or somewhere else, where they set up vacuums with like broad heads directly under their wheels. And it it contains a fair amount of the dust, but it's not getting everything. And I don't think there is a way of like you were just saying. There's no way to get everything uh, unless you're in a, you know, probably like some million dollar. Uh, extraction set up in the in the shop itself. So just take caution. Use what use the PPE that's available. There's plenty of good stuff. I use um, like uh, if I'm I'm not if I'm lazy, but I've got two. I've got the 3M one, which has the double filter, uh, which is non-powered, uh, and that one, if it's you know a cool enough day, I'll wear that. And then I actually went out and bought one of those Trend Air Shield Pro positive feed things with the, you know, you look like you're going on a Mars mission, um, but it's not particularly heavy. If you've got a big melon like mine, they fit really well. Um, if you've got a beard, they've got a um, elastic sort of skirt under the bottom and that, you know, if you've got facial hair, um, that doesn't matter. So they're one of the better ones if you've got that. Um, and then, you know, I paid um, 650 bucks for it and no regrets whatsoever and actually blows a reasonably cool amount of air over your face so if you're in the shop and it's hot you actually have that nice feeling of cold air getting blown over the face which is good um, in terms of using that material uh, just on your belt grinders and stuff so outside of the safety side with it um, the common thing is sharp belts and work slowly um, so if, if you've got a variable speed machine um, take your time with it. Use really sharp belts. I'll guarantee if you do a set of a set or two of G10 scales, and you use a fresh 50 belt, it's going to be rooted after you've done those scales. So take into account, factor into your, you know, your budget or whatever for your knife making uh, or sale price. Uh, you're probably going to use a belt. What belt are you using for that? Uh, I use. I get the ones I get from you, the blue, the yeah. blue sixties. Oh, you know, that, 
you go you go they fill up quickly you're not probably not going to do it out of two sets of scales but if you run it too fast you will you'll clog that belt up oh, and it's impossible to clean out once you're going to do everything slow once you get the heat up uh, they will it, it melts plastics and it sticks to the belt yeah, it's like sure. yeah, it's a total mess so hey, get get one of those uh, rubber belt cleaners and just use it use it between passes like those things are cheap as so oh just use a thong get an old thong or a thong old pair of shoes you can buy you can buy a belt cleaner but mate i just use an old thong and it works just as good as far as i can work out and for the american for the american (laughs) i was about to say the same thing you do it for the american listeners uh thongs are what you would commonly refer to as flip-flops i believe Um, so we're not taking our underpants off um, and, and rubbing them on the belt to clean it. Uh, <laughs> no one needs a brown skid marks on the belt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, we're just going downhill faster and faster. <laughs> Fart jokes and brownie skitty jokes. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, so- low, uh, low speed, work slowly, clean it up, wear protection. Um, if you can avoid it, don't use the stuff. But it's really cool to use. So. Yeah, no, honestly, it's not. It's. It, it, I don't think. I wouldn't say don't use it because um, no, if know. you're looking, if you're looking at any of the timbers that we use, particularly some of the Aussie woods like Bob Mulga and stuff, totally. What's some of the, the import stuff that's really bad? Coca-Bola. It's all toxic. Yeah, Coca-Cola. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Any of those, anything like that, is going to cause you a problem. So the best way is to just treat dust with respect. And probably get a, get yourself a shop vac. I would I would seriously like I vacuum my shop now like because I can, um, and I've just got a cheap yeah. shop vac. I've got a, a good bag in there like it's a paper filter bag which is pretty good, and a, and a separate like cloth filter thing as well which picks up a lot of the fine dust. It probably isn't the best thing in the whole world, but keeping the the floor and the dust under control is half your battle won, I reckon. Yeah, shop backs are definitely a good good investment. I look with mine. I get my. I open up one roller door, and I'll use my um, air compressor to blow most of the dust to one end of the workshop. Sweep up the bulk, put that in the bin, and then air compress everything. And then when you get the shop out, you think it's clean. Then you get the shop back out after that, and the amount of stuff that you still pick up it's pretty amazing. Yeah, the air compressor can get everything spread it all everywhere as well, which. It particularly shits me because it gets up, um, uh, you know, onto my lathe or something like that. You get all the yeah. uh, abrasives getting up onto the machines, like my lathe and my mill, which is uh, it just upsets me. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm tend to I tend to shop vac eat, and no matter what the quantity. Yeah, bags are cheap, you know. Yeah, yeah true. Another word from our sponsor, Gamaco Artisan Supplies. You can use the down under 10 coupon code to purchase any Norton products. So Norton Blaze, Norton Norox, Norax belts. Uh, those belts are fantastic belts. The best in the industry as reviewed by many. And uh, uh, with the 10% extra discount code uh, as well as the 23% off for buying in bulk. That is very, very good value. So jump in and use that discount code. The more you use it, the better it is. The better the, the that we can um, we can build this podcast. So, uh, yeah, get into it. Thank you. Very good.
Moving so, on, Matt. What else you got on? Well, mate, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you a question. So, and we going to tie up to something else later on. So, style. So, Kev, how do you come up with your own style? Ah, right. Okay. Um, well, some some of the early influences for my knife making style were um, from where I learned how to make knives. So, obviously, if you if you take a class with a particular maker, um, you're probably going to be heavily influenced by their styling. Um, that that was the case with me. My earlier knives definitely have um, a much different look about them in. in blade design and handle design, everything is so far removed from what I'm doing now. And it's just a progression process of, um, you know, get feedback from people about, you know, uh, blade design, ergonomics, geometry, uh, and apply it where you like it. So, you know, listen to what people say, but you don't have to do, you know, because a maker tells you this is how I do it, doesn't mean that's how you have to do it. Look at what they've done, see what you like, and take a part of that. So my stuff started evolving because I liked um, particular makers' knives uh, a lot. I liked the shape of them; they were very classic styles, especially for my hunting stuff. Um, and one of the key influences with that uh, with that was Sean McIntyre. You know, he's a, we talk about Sean a bit. Those that may just be tuning in, he's a master smith, and he lives in Australia. Um, and he's very generous with his um, information that he gives to people and also critiquing uh, of design. So through a process of the critiquing and actually spending a little bit of time with Sean in the workshop, um, my designs have sort of probably my knife design would look, uh, you know, similar to a degree to Sean's uh, in shape. Mm -hmm. Lately, I've been sort of just um, looking at um, other other aspects like choil choil styles, uh, where the plunge lines sit, and some of that's from feedback that I've had from um, you know reputable makers in America as well. And same with my handle design. So um, it was last year that I went over to Blade Show for the first time. I got uh, the same uh, information from or advice from people. About four or five master smiths came over, and they all said the same subtle thing on my. Um, handle shapes, you know, and I, I was like, oh, well, I kind of like my handle shapes, but hey, look, I'll give it a go. And I came home and, you know, jumped on the machines and um, just did what they said and and liked it. And I thought, well, you know, it doesn't look doesn't look bad. I'll stick with that. But I actually had people recognise it and they'll say, oh, we've seen this change since you got back from America. And um, you know, they couldn't really work out what it was because it was very subtle. But I told them in the end, and they were. They were like, oh yeah, that's good, but you know, so like Sean heavily influenced for the for the hunting style. Um, yourself and Chad Tristone blades probably where I get most of the influence off my kitchen knives. Um, and same thing with that is you know you might get a template from you or Chad, um, and then I always change it up a little bit. I get home and I go right, I, I don't want it to be exactly the same as what you're doing, um, you know, and I might then apply my vision of what looks good um, aesthetically to me and then and then go with that. It's when I teach classes, I say to the people on my classes as well, if you think it looks good and you think it looks right, run with it. You know, everyone's going to be different. You don't have to do, 
you know, a prescribed thing, you know, this, this maker makes this knife looks cool. Yeah. You've got to replicate that. But mind you, if you do, uh, if you are, you know, like taking someone's designs or being influenced by the designs, uh, give them credit for it. Yeah. So like actually, actually let people know, yeah, I've, this is a, you know, knife, uh, design that I like and learn it from Sean McIntyre, blah, 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 because, you know, it, it just tells people, I guess, the basis of where you've come from on it. So yeah, that's probably where I get my design stuff from. How, um, the, a part of the process, I guess, further that and some of the subtle changes, a part of that process is, um, in looking at doing the journeyman Smith stuff, um, my techniques or style has changed subtly as well. Um, and it's making them, I guess, trying to make them cleaner, crisper, less is more. So I don't have a lot of, um, bits and pieces on the knife. I like the blade to look clean and then it's got to match to a really clean, nice shaped handle. And I've still got work to go on that for my journeyman Smith stuff this year. I, again, I've got some feedback next step to take with, with the handle design. Um, you know, I just got to take that on board and go with it. What about you, Corin? Well, I'm pretty simple, mate. I, I make barrel knives, and in doing so, I, I basically copy a design from years gone by. Uh, I, as you, my earlier work and uh, other things that I've done have all been based around the Scandinavian theme. I think whatever you do, to me, um, I, I mean, I'm copying something that was made 100 years ago. I, I don't copy it exactly. Kevin will tell you I make my own improvements and um, make them my own. I think... Um, you know what I'm making today is better than what they made then, and I, I'm I'm certainly doing the best I can. Um, what I think is important as well is though is that you you do listen to other people. It's very important, but you do maintain your own style. And Kev, for example, your handles, you know, the constructive criticism good, and it's making a better knife, and you're happy. Yep, go with it. But don't be afraid to say no. This is my style, because that's the only time you should really consider a change, in my opinion, is if you're not selling knives. If people are not happy with your work, then it's time to make a change. But if you're selling product and people like what you're making and nobody else is making it, that's your style. You go right ahead and roll with it, whatever anyone says. That's oh, just yeah, gonna, absolutely. You know, just going to put it out there because there's there's been cases in the past where well-known well and well-respected Smiths have been told that they're doing it wrong. And at the end of the day, there is no wrongs in knife making. It's what the customer wants, what the customer likes, what they're using it for. That's the beauty of it. If we all make the same thing, it's fucking hopeless. Let's get out no, of it. It'd be a stale little world, wouldn't it? Yeah, knife wouldn't shows it? would be pretty pretty boring. The only difference would be the person standing behind the table. Yeah, yeah, and you may as well start a factory. And that's not what custom knife making is yeah. about. Kev, yeah. uh, sorry, Matt. Oh, look, I was going to give you an example. It's outside of the knife making. So when I was chefing, probably like this is 10 years ago or so, and one of the chefs that I was influenced by a lot, Robert Gershnecker, I left his kitchen, I became an executive chef someplace, I'm cooking, but at that, moment, at that point in my life, I'm still in denial that I get heavily influenced by his food. Okay, I'm running my own kitchen, I'm cooking, I'm doing dishes and I'm looking. At one point, I made a piece, I said, look, these are my dishes, but I'm heavily influenced by him. So I admit it to myself. Okay, at that point, I became more free. I was about to come up with more my style. 
Here you can tell that I was influenced by him. I was his disciple. I was his student. But my style started to take off. I see the same thing with the knife making. When I first got into knife making, I really liked the handles of uh, Michael Rader and Bill Burke. And I went to Bill Burke to his shop to learn about how to make semi and things like that. But at one point, knowing that I liked his style, I was about to create my own style. Now, when people are looking at my knives, they, they can tell, yeah, I make Western-style handles, but now they know it's my style. You can tell without seeing a knife, it's my style. It's made by Matt. You can tell. So that's one of the most important things. Yes, I agree. You should give credit to the maker, but you must evolve. It's good that you give yeah. me credit for something that you took a straight inspiration from me. You gave me credit. That's good. But if I keep looking at your feet, you're making the same fucking knife over and over without any change. I'm losing all the respect. Okay. Yeah. So it's good that you took inspiration. Thanks for giving me credit. But you know, make that your own design. Like change it a little bit. So when yeah, I'm looking at somebody's timeline, and I'm having second thoughts like, when did I make this knife? Oh, this is not my picture. This is somebody. <laughs> this is this is somebody else's page. Like that that shit me. Yeah, I see that. I see that a lot, man, as well. I, I look at I look at Instagram sometimes, and I'll, I'll see a picture and I'll go, "Oh, Mert's made another knife," and it's not. It, it's someone else has made that knife, and it's it's like a ninety-eight percent copy. I see the same. Um, obviously, when people take influence from people like um, Mareko, Mumasi yeah. knives, yeah. you know, he makes beautiful stuff, and then people just they they're like replicating it and it's like you know it's like uh as i say the, the flat copy copying is like flattery and all whatever the crap is but you know you, you get sick of seeing it after a while like if someone's just doing the exact same thing and on the other hand mate that's business <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know sometimes i think of those makers you know uh with the same regard as china just yeah. stealing stuff and then pumping it out Whatever you do in business, whatever you do that's successful in business, someone's going to copy it, and you just—it's yeah. it's just yeah. shit. But it is, you know. Yeah. You know, when you get a follow request from a maker, like the name sounds too American to be the true, like a Freedom Damascus knives, and all of a sudden you click on it. We make all <laughs> kinds of Damascus. We specialize in everything. We ship everywhere to world, and you see like five golden eyes with the shit Damascus made from a Coca-Cola tins sink and the door of a recycled ship yeah the worst thing about those guys is that they offer often offer to put your branding on there which i just think is like who takes that up yeah i'd like to meet them quite yeah, you'll be surprised you... you'll be surprised like there's a page that i follow chef's talk okay has millions of followers a lot of chefs a lot of young chefs go to that page look at every day to see what kind of new food trends are and what kind of people like what the chefs are doing the other day i I'm on my Instagram feed. I clicked on it all of a sudden. Oh, we, we collaborated with this company. Look at these amazing Damascus knives. I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, those guys are promoting that. I'm thinking, like, you have no fucking idea. No. No. Yeah. no. It's funny. You go, on, you go on those groups or those pages, like you said, the ones that just seem too overly American named. And you scroll through, and like they have their shitty, usual um, looking knives that they do. And then they'll have a picture of another knife 
and you look at it and go, hang on, that's like a David Lynch knife. Well, that's a, <laughs> a Sean McAdoo or a Keith Flutter knife. And you're like, I, I always send them messages. I get blocked a lot of the, uh, I get blocked from a lot of those guys because I'll send them a message, literally saying, that's not your fucking knife. That's Dave Lish's knife. You fucking wanker, and just yeah. give them a massive serve, like write a massive paragraph. And next thing you know, they disappear from your feed. <laughs> you got, yeah, mission accomplished. They've been blocked. Mission awesome. accomplished. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just, um, yeah, it's not on. It's not on. But well, let's not focus on the negatives in the industry. Nah. <laughs> so, <Yeah. Stalking> <laughs> bastards. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's like this. Like you can't rubbish your opposition. And um, if that's your opposition and your customers don't know the difference between what they're doing and what you're doing, um, that that's they're they're failing at the, the basic bioware law of business economics, you know. Absolutely. So, well, you can only try and educate. You can only try and educate people when they ask, especially when they ask you, you know, why does your Damascus knife cost eight hundred dollars, and I can buy a set of them for two hundred dollars. No, you know, it's nice to point out that mine's made out of proper steels and not just recycled washing machines and refrigerator parts um, in some back country area of Pakistan. Um, you know, and mine, mine it won't fold over if you actually press it down on a hard surface. So, yeah. You know, some of them still go for those knives. Some of them just think they're beautiful and they go for it and they buy them and it's like, oh, well, you know, same thing, done. There's a beautiful old... There's a beautiful old quote from John Ruskin from like well over 100 years ago and it says, it's unwise to pay too much but it's worse to pay too little. When you pay too much, you lose a little money. That is all. When you pay too little, you sometimes lose everything because the thing you bought was incapable of doing the thing you bought it to do. The common law of business balance prohibits paying a little and getting a lot can't be done. If you deal with the lowest bidder, it is well to add something for the risk you run, and if you do that, you'll have enough to pay for something better. <laughs> I think yeah. Also, true. don't be cheap bastard. Don't be, it's, it's basically, don't be a cheap bastard. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that, go, that goes to both the makers and the, buyer, uh, the, makers and the buyers. Don't be cheap bastards. You know? yeah. <laughs> so there's it goes on to say, just a minute, I've got some, there's more to that quote actually. There's hardly anything in the world that someone cannot make a little worse and sell a little cheaper. And people who consider price only are this man's lawful prey. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. there you go. There's, there's, rare, there's rare circumstances where you can get, you know, good value for a small amount of money, but it's often not the case that you, you know, Cheap doesn't always represent good value. No, uh, not at all. Not at all. So, well, I've got to wrap it up uh, shortly. I've got other places I need to be today, this morning. Right. Corin, right. you look like you're struggling to keep the eyeballs open now. Um, anything we want to sort of finish up today's episode with? Anyone got any uh, shout-outs or tips to, yeah, to the people? I got a shout out. I was approached by a gentleman, uh, Timothy Mitchell, Buffalo River Forge. So I've been following this Facebook group with the wood steel, and I was following this guy's post, and uh, I had no idea this guy lived in Australia, let alone he lived one and a half hours away from me. He's, uh, he's been making wood steel for a long time. His name is Timothy Mitchell, and he's just getting started with his uh, Instagram page, and he makes his own steel, his, uh, his own wood steel. Give him a follow. Buffalo River Buffalo River Forge. 
Timothy presented at the first Blade Symposium I went to at yeah. Keith Slutter's place some time ago. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, he had a uh, he he made some woots over the weekend. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Niels Ogren from another podcast called The Forge Cast. I dropped in on his forge when I was over in Sweden, um, setting up. He's a multi generational farmer. You know, the farm's been uh, held in the family for hundreds of years. Niels makes some great axes and great swords. His Instagram is N I L S O G R E N. Lovely guy, and uh, give him a follow. Very good. I want to give a shout out to a fellow that was just at my workshop uh, over the weekend, uh, Shane Cassidy. He's from Cassidy Custom Knives, um, and uh, I think it'll just give the big unit a bit of a chuckle if I, I put his name out there. Really nice guy, yeah, um, and you know, uh, he's under Cassidy Custom Knives. He's doing some stuff that's pretty pretty cool. Um, he's got a bit of a uh, focus on some, you know, different designs. Definitely has his own style, which is cool to see. And he's only just upgraded from using a shitty little one by thirty grinder to a two by forty eight. Uh, just on a, I think it's a multi tool upgrade. So when you consider what he's, um, you know, the stuff he's working with, he's actually starting to make some really nice stuff. So uh, it was fun, fun to have him over uh, on the weekend. As usual, we just sort of slyly put shit on each other for forty eight hours and then look forward to seeing each other the next time round. Yeah, he's a he's a nice guy, mate. Um, tell me. That's Shane, his Instagram's Cassidy Custom Knives. That's custom with a K, right? Correct, yeah. Yep. Uh, there we go. All right, boys, I'm done. I'm going to bed. Righto. I'm going to go and uh, get stuff underway for the day. Uh, again, thanks to everyone out there for listening. We had a little break. Uh, that break uh, was good, I think. Uh, like I said, Corum was or has been and still is overseas. Uh, when he gets back, we'll we'll get the next episode underway, and we'll um, probably talk to him more about that trip because you know it's always cool to find out what people have done, especially in another country. Uh, yeah. And we'll talk a bit about the projects that we've under we're undergoing as well because I'm definitely back in the workshop um, making knives again, which is cool. Uh, teaching people, which is cool. So you know the the fire is back, the sparks back. I'm loving it. How's the thumb? Oh, yeah, look, it's it, it's good. I still get scared when I go near the grinder because I don't want to take any skin off. Uh, the nail, I might put a picture up on the um, Facebook page. <laughs> it's It looks funky. There's no nail still yet. Um, I'm starting to wonder if it'll ever get a nail growing back on it. But, um, you know, it's I was lucky. It's all got its feeling. Nah, it's, it's all bad. Battle, battle scars and street cred. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> it'll 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 come good or it won't. I don't care. I can still yeah. make knives. You got two of them, right? <laughs> it's funny. It's funny seeing people post up on uh, Facebook and Instagram, having listened to the podcast, you know, and they're they're posting up where they got skin missing off their thumbs, and they're like, "Yeah, I've done a Kev's forge." <laughs> it's like, not really the level of fame I want, but hey. <laughs> um. Uh, thanks to everyone who are following us. I think we've got 600 and something now on Facebook and there's a bunch on Instagram. And, you know, the podcast is starting to pick up. Share it with your friends, guys, and let them know. It's good, you know, if you want us to talk about anything, if there's anything that you uh, want us to cover, and you've already asked, by the way, because 
we've let a lot of stuff go during the last couple of weeks. Just re re ask it, and we'll 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 get back on track pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm, I'm putting the list together. I'm putting a list together of stuff which people have asked to cover. So um, we haven't necessarily forgotten you. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get onto that. Some of the stuff is is going to be pretty cool to talk about as well. Yeah, it's not it's not that we don't like you. It's just that we're incompetent. But that's okay. Yeah, it's a good way to be. <laughs> See us. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Cheers, fellas. Bye. Bye.